Genesis 17.1 Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is bought in your house, born in your house, or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. When he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all the servants who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day as God had said to him. Now Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael his son was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very same day Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael his son. All the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when they saw him, when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, So do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them, and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, There in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah your wife will have a son. 
And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord also being old? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. At this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Father, now I pray that you would help those who hear to understand your word and help me as I speak to speak it clearly, to have a word from you and not a word that is my own opinion, my own thoughts, my own understanding, but that by your spirit you would speak through me to us and teach us today. Teach us about yourself. Teach us about ourselves. Teach us about what it means to put our trust in you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to think back with me to the time which many of you will remember when the United States Embassy in Beirut was bombed, killing 63 people. It was the same year that Return of the Jedi was the blockbuster hit in the movie theaters. The same year that the HIV virus was first identified. The same year that Cabbage Patch Kids were all the rage The same year that the Chicken McNugget was introduced and became an American food icon. The same year that Tom Brokaw took over as the main anchor for NBC Nightly News. The year that the first edition of Microsoft Word rolled off Bill Gates' assembly line. It was the year in which your pastor was in the first grade. I wonder if you can guess what year that was. It was 1983. 1983. It's been a long time since those things happened, hasn't it? A lot has happened since 1983. A lot of water has gone under the bridge since 1983. Many of us have had friends and loved ones who have gone on to be with the Lord in that span. We've seen children now grown up and having their own children. Two Gulf Wars have been fought In that span, communism has almost disappeared off the face of the map. Now, in 2006, we have entered full force into an age of information that we could have scarcely imagined in 1983. It has been a long time since 1983. 23 years, in fact. The same amount of time that Abram spent waiting for a son. You may recall that in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, when Abram was 76 years old, God had promised to make Abram a great nation, and God had promised through Abram and his family to bless all the families of the earth. But when chapter 17 opens, Abram is 99 years old and has almost nothing to show for all the promises that God had made, save only a 13-year-old illegitimate son. 23 years. It's a long time to wait for an answer from the Lord. I wonder if any of you have been praying for someone or something for 23 years, seemingly without an answer. I wonder if any of you have had a medical condition or a family difficulty or a hurt in your heart or an unfulfilled hope that you've been enduring since 1983 or longer. If you do, or if you have, you understand that 23 years is a long, long time to wait. It would be difficult for me to wait even 23 hours sometimes for the Lord to answer. 
Sometimes if I pray and I, and I stand up and the Lord doesn't answer within 23 minutes, I think He must have forgotten me. So it would be very difficult for me to imagine waiting 23 years for God to fulfill His promise without somewhere along the way being tempted to give up. No doubt Abraham was, and no doubt some of you may have been. But if you've been waiting for what seems like a long time, maybe it's a year, maybe it's 23 years, maybe it's 50 years. If you've been waiting for what seems like a long time for God to answer your prayers or for God to come through on His promises, there is hope for you in Genesis chapter 17, especially in the first eight verses. The hope is this. God never forgets His people and He never forgets His promises. God had promised Abram a family back in chapter 12. He's been reiterating that promise since then. And here in chapter 17, He is once more reassuring Abram, Abram, I haven't forgotten you. I will give you the son that I promised you. Verse 2, I will multiply you exceedingly. Verse 4, you will be the father of a multitude of nations. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Verse 6 again, kings will come from you. I will do what I said I would do, says the Lord to Abraham. And says the Lord through this story to us. Let this story, let verses 1 through 8 let God's reiteration of His promise, God's reassurance, be reassurance to you this morning. Let God's words to Abram encourage you not to lose heart waiting either. Yes, I know these are God's specific promises made to Abram, and they're not God's specific promises made to you. And no, I don't know what you may have been waiting for for a long time, or how long it's been that you've been waiting. But I do know this based on this story. God never forgets His people. And God never forgets His promises. He will do what He said He would do. He did not forget Abraham, and He will not forget us, Abraham's spiritual descendants. If you will, God is the original promise keeper. We need to take notice of the fact that God's promise to Abraham, however, was not just a promise of a son, but it was the promise of salvation. Yes, God promised him a family. Yes, God promised him a son. Yes, God was going to come through on that. But God's covenant in verse 7 was not only for a, a son, but for salvation. In verse 7, God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. And here's what the covenant is. To be God to you and to your descendants after you. It was a covenant to be His God. To save Him. And then in verse 8, He says it again concerning Abraham's descendants. I will be their God. God was entering into a covenant of salvation with Abraham and his family. He would be their God. And they, out of all the nations of the earth, would become His people. It's a covenant to save them. To make them His very own. And it's the same covenant that God makes with us when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, God covenants to be our God. And God covenants that out of all the people in the world, we who place our faith in Christ get the privilege of becoming His people. That's a covenant of salvation. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the covenant made with Abraham and that's the covenant made with those who place their faith in Christ. We are saved by faith in Christ. Now our emphasis that we are saved by faith in Christ may make verses 9-14 through 14 difficult for us to understand. Because it seems like in verses 9-14, through 14, God was asking Abraham and his family to enter into a saving relationship with himself, not by faith, but by works. Specifically, by the work of circumcision. And we can summarize what God is saying to Abraham just by looking again at verse 14. An uncircumcised male 
who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Doesn't it seem as though God was basing his relationship with Abraham and his family on works, on circumcision, rather than on faith alone? That's what it seems like. If you're not circumcised, you've broken the covenant and you're out. So the question we have to ask is, had God changed his mind since chapter 15, verse 6, when Abraham believed in the Lord and he, the Lord, reckoned it to him as righteousness? In chapter 15, verse 6, God declared Abraham right with him. God entered into relationship with Abraham, not based on works, but based on faith. Abraham believed the Lord And he, the Lord, reckoned it to him as righteousness. So though it may seem here in chapter 17 like God is basing his relationship, his covenant with Abraham on works, the answer is it's not so. The reason why I can say that is not only because of what we see in Genesis chapter 15 where it makes it clear that Abraham was saved by faith, but also... Paul, in Romans chapter 4, verse 11, is commenting on these verses and on this story, and particularly on what circumcision meant for Abraham. And he says this, Abraham received the sign, sign is an important word in that sentence, Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith he had while uncircumcised. Circumcision, Paul is saying, was not what saved Abraham, but it was a sign of the faith that he had before he was circumcised. The faith that he had in chapter 15. So circumcision wasn't something that Abraham did to all of a sudden please God and get himself into right relationship with God. Circumcision was simply an outward symbol or an outward sign of an inward reality that was already true. Namely, that Abraham trusted God. Circumcision was important because it was a sign outwardly of Abraham's faith, both a sign to God and a sign to himself, a sign to the generations after him, and a sign to the world around him. It symbolized that Abraham was set apart to God, much like baptism symbolizes that for us today. But circumcision was only a sign. The reality was faith. The reality was that Abraham believed in the Lord. Abraham trusted the Lord. So when God says, Abraham, you must be circumcised, he's not asking him to do something new. He's simply asking him to follow through on the commitment of faith that he's already made. If Abraham trusts the Lord, surely he will want to do what the Lord says. And that's what circumcision was. It was just an extension of Abraham trusting that God knew what was best. But it was not obedience to the command of circumcision itself or any other work that saved Abraham. It was faith in a merciful God. And again, the same is true for us. The work of baptism doesn't save us, nor do the works of church attendance or tithing or even obedience to the Ten Commandments. We're not saved by works. We're saved by entrusting ourselves to the mercy of God, which is granted to us in His Son, Jesus Christ. And any works that we do are simply signs or evidences of faith that already exists in our hearts. Baptism, like circumcision for Abraham, is a sign of the faith that we had before we were baptized. Obedience to the Ten Commandments is evidence of the faith that we already had before we started obeying the Ten Commandments. All of our works are evidences of faith, and it is faith that saves. So before we go on this morning, let me just pause and ask you a question. Are you sure that you get that? Are you sure that you understand that your attendance this morning your participation this morning, even your genuine interest in what's happening this morning cannot secure for you a spot in God's family? Are you certain that you are banking your hope of eternity 100% on what Jesus has done 
and not on what you have done. Let me put just a little more pressure on you by reminding you that Ishmael, Abraham's son, was circumcised. You can read that in chapter 17, verse 25. Ishmael was circumcised, and yet Ishmael did not enter into the covenant. Verses 19 through 21. The covenant was with Isaac, and Ishmael did not enter into it. So not everyone who had the outward sign of circumcision was someone who truly believed and therefore was counted as righteous in God's sight and entered into His covenant. Just like not everyone who goes through the waters of baptism joins the church and proceeds to live an outwardly moral lifestyle truly believes. Surely there were many Old Testament Jews who put their trust in the outward sign of circumcision, something that they could do, instead of trusting alone in God who is the one who commanded the circumcision. Surely many an Old Testament Jew was circumcised without really trusting in God. He just did it because it was what Jews do. Or he just did it because he thought, now I can check this off the list and now God will accept me because I've done the right works. Surely many New Testament churchgoers, maybe some in this very congregation, have made the same deadly mistake. Trusting in the walking of an aisle or the praying of a prayer or the enactment of some religious ritual. All things that man can do rather than trusting in Jesus Christ who alone can pardon our sins. Perhaps some in this congregation today have seen a list of religious works that they thought they needed to check off all of them on the list. And if they could check off the list, then God would be pleased and they would be saved. That's not how it works. We're saved by trusting in what God can do, not in what we can do. So if you're in the predicament this morning, saying to yourself, I think that's where I am. I've done lots of religious things and I thought that's what it meant to be a Christian, but I've never actually despaired of my own ability and trusted only in the ability of Jesus Christ to save me. Jesus Christ to have mercy on me. If you're in that predicament today, let me say to you, today is the day to stop pretending. You may say to yourself, well, if I admit today that I've been a phony all along, what will people think of me? Who cares what people think of you? You say, if I admit that I've been a phony all along and that I've never really put my trust in Christ, people will say that I'm a hypocrite. So are the rest of us. None of us have obeyed God like we should. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we need His blood atoning for our sins. Because we are failures. So fear not to admit that you're a failure today. Fear not to admit that you've been pretending today. Today is the day to get that right. Today is the day to put your trust in Christ. Today is the day of salvation. I pray and I trust that as you listen and God pierces your heart that today will be a day of salvation for some of you. Here's an interesting theological question as we continue on into verses 15 through 22. Why did Isaac apparently believe and enter into the covenant and Ishmael, who grew up in the same household, did not Enter into the covenant. Was it because Isaac had a better opportunity to hear about God than Ishmael? Well, no. The two boys grew up in the same family, didn't they? Hearing the same instructions from the same father. Yet Isaac apparently believed and Ishmael didn't. Did Isaac believe because... Abraham loved him more than he loved Ishmael? Well, no. Abraham clearly loved and prayed for Ishmael. In verse 18, you find him pleading with God to make his covenant with Ishmael. God says no. It wasn't Abraham's fault. 
Why did Isaac believe and Ishmael apparently didn't? Was it because Isaac was just a wiser and more spiritual person than his older brother? Well, that can't be it either because as we read the story, Isaac hasn't even been born yet. In God's plan, Isaac was assured of entering the covenant before he was ever born and before he had done anything good or bad. So it wasn't goodness or spiritual wisdom that caused Isaac to enter into the covenant and Ishmael to stay on the outside. So what made the difference between the two boys? Why did Isaac apparently believe and enter the covenant and Ishmael did not? Well, the answer is obvious in verses 19 through 21, isn't it? Let's read them again together. Let's actually read 18 through 21. Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. What made the difference between the two boys? Why did Isaac enter into the covenant and Ishmael did not? Answer, God decided which one of them would enter into the covenant. God decided before Isaac was ever born that the covenant would be with Isaac and his descendants, not with Ishmael and his descendants. So it had nothing to do with the goodness or the wisdom of one son or the other. And it had everything to do with God's freedom to do whatever He pleases with those whom He created and those whom He owns. Now let's pause here and say that clearly Isaac must have at some point in his life believed in the Lord just like his daddy did. Otherwise, Isaac could never have entered into the covenant. We must put our faith in the Lord before we can enter into His saving covenant. So we're not saying that Isaac, the chosen one, never had even to exercise faith. Of course Isaac had to exercise faith. The question is not, did Isaac have to exercise faith? The question is, why did Isaac choose to exercise faith when Ishmael, apparently growing up in the same home and hearing the same truths, chose not to? And the plain answer in the text, again, is simply that God chose Isaac and God did not choose Ishmael. Just like in a few chapters, God is going to choose Jacob and not choose his brother Esau. And just like in Ephesians chapter 1 and elsewhere in the New Testament, the Bible says God chose some for salvation before the foundation of the world, but did not choose all. In fact, Romans 9.16 puts it quite well when Paul says that our salvation does not depend on our willing and it doesn't depend on our running, but on God who shows mercy. Our salvation, our entering into God's covenant does not depend on our free will and it does not depend on our effort, but on God who shows mercy. We choose God because He first chose us. We choose God only because He first chose us. So we're not saying that Isaac didn't choose God and we're not saying that God's New Testament elect don't choose to put their faith in God. What we're saying is the reason why they choose to do so is because God first chose them. Now someone may say, well, why does God choose some and not others? How does God decide whom He's going to choose? Well, I don't know how that works. Because God doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us here with Isaac and Ishmael, and He doesn't tell us concerning His elect elsewhere. I don't know why God chooses some and not others, but I do know this. I'm glad that God does that. Because I know myself well enough to know that if God hadn't first chosen me, I would never have chosen Him. If God hadn't first chosen me, I would still be in my sins. So I'm thankful that God chooses some. Now, the difficulty comes though when we affirm that God chooses some, when we affirm that God chose Jacob 
and God chose Isaac and God chooses us. Affirming that, we also have to affirm and acknowledge that God must not have chosen Ishmael and Esau and countless others who were never saved. We have to affirm the fact that if God chooses some to be saved, then the opposite side of that coin is that God does not choose others. God chooses to rescue some of mankind from the fiery furnace and others He chooses not to rescue. You may say, how is that fair? How can God choose some and not choose others? How can God not give everybody an equal opportunity to hear the Gospel and understand the Gospel and believe the Gospel? How is that fair? Is that fair? The answer is no, of course not. That's not fair. What would be fair is if God would have just destroyed the whole human race at the flood and been done with a lot of us. Fair would have been for Abraham to have been struck dead at Hagar's side in the midst of his adulterous act. Fair would have been for neither Ishmael the sinner, nor Isaac the sinner, nor you the sinner, nor me the sinner, to have been saved. Fair would be me burning in hell Right now. That's what I deserve. That's what's fair. So I don't pretend to understand the reasons why God extends mercy to some and not to others. I don't know why we have the gospel so readily available in our country and why the Siwa people in the deserts of Egypt have never heard. I don't understand that. I don't know why God chooses some and not others. I just know that the Bible teaches that our salvation is ultimately in God's hands and not our own. And I know that if God had not chosen some, all of us would be in hell. And I know that if God had not first chosen me, I would never have chosen Him. So when I read about Isaac, God choosing Isaac over Ishmael, and God choosing Jacob over Esau, and God choosing the New Testament elect over everyone else, my response should never be a disgruntled, That's not fair. My response rather should be with trembling. Thank you, God, for being unfair. Thank you, God, for not giving every last one of us what we deserve. Thank you, God, for saving some. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus so that many poor sinners might be treated quite unfairly to your mercy. Thank you, God, that you have not treated us as we all deserve. Now, as we follow God's story of mercy toward Abraham and his family along, recognizing that it was undeserved, recognizing that Abraham was saved by faith and not by works, we need also, however, to notice Abraham's obedience to God. Especially, notice it in verses 23 through 27 where God says, if I can paraphrase, Abraham, I want you to circumcise yourself. I want you to circumcise your son. I want you to circumcise every male servant of yours, whether he was born in your house or bought from outside of your house. Every male in your family, every male in your household, I want you to circumcise him. That's not an easy task, is it? The men in the room could understand and even imagine that there must have been a wave of uneasiness and maybe even protest that arose across the camp of Abraham. His men must have been wondering what had gotten a hold of him. Why would he do this to us? This is too hard, Abraham. But despite whatever protests may have come, despite whatever protests may have arisen in his own heart, Abraham followed through. Not because the task was easy, and not because Abraham saw any immediate enjoyment in being circumcised or any immediate benefit. It was a painful task. Abraham, though, followed through because, as we read in chapter 15, Abraham believed in the Lord. Abraham trusted that God knew what he was talking about. And Abraham showed his trust in God by doing what God said. And you know that's the way faith always works. If we really trust God, we will do what He says. 
we really believe that God knows what's best, we will obey Him. And obedience works this way in every relationship that we have in life. As we read in John 10, sheep follow a shepherd because they've learned to trust His voice. Children obey parents best when mom and dad prove to be trustworthy guides. Wives are most willing to submit to their husbands when their husbands demonstrate that they are trustworthy. Trustworthiness and trust begets obedience. And so it is with the people of God. Now, God is infinitely trustworthy. There's no debating that. And God commands us to obey. There's no debating that. But linking those two things together is whether or not we believe that God is trustworthy and therefore whether or not we will obey. We will only be able to obey God when by His grace we come to a place where we actually believe that He knows best. Obedience then is vitally important in the Christian life, isn't it? Faith leads to obedience. And we cannot be saved without faith. So if we can't be saved without faith, and faith leads to practical obedience to God, then obedience is vitally important, isn't it? Because it's a demonstration of whether or not we really trust God, whether or not we really believe and are saved. We don't nullify the fact that we're made right with God by faith in Jesus alone, but we do say that the faith that saves us is always demonstrated by works. Or as the Reformers used to say, a man is saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. A man is saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves him is never alone. Saving faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by obedience to God in whom we've come to trust. So that James in the New Testament says almost sarcastically to those whose so-called faith didn't actually change the way they lived. People who had faith but who didn't obey God supposedly had faith. Here's what he says to them. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, in the mind of James... The only way to prove that you really believe God is to obey Him. So the lesson in verses 23 through 27 is that those who trust God like Abraham will surely want to obey God like Abraham. And therefore, an important question for those who profess faith in God this morning is, are you demonstrating that faith by doing what God says? The question is not, are you perfect? But is there a desire in your heart to bring every thought and every word and every action and every motivation under captivity to Christ? Is there a desire in your heart to wholeheartedly obey God because you trust Him and you believe He knows what's best? And is there increasing evidence in your life that you're growing in obedience to God? Or are there areas in your life that still have the do not disturb sign hanging on the door. Areas in your life where you say, God, you're welcome in and I want to do what you say, but there's this one room, God, where there's going to be a sign when you come there and it's going to be do not disturb. And so if you wouldn't mind, just leave the things that are behind that door uh, to my own devices. Let me decide what I'm going to do in those areas. Do you have a room in your life like that? An area of your life where God is not allowed to come in and shape and mold who you are and what you do and how you think. The question really is, do you trust God enough to do what He says in every area of your life? Even if it seems difficult. And even if it seems impossible. Speaking of impossible, that's how the situation seemed to Sarah as we move into chapter 18. When these three men suddenly appeared outside of the tent where she lived and announced that she was going to have a child, she thought to herself, impossible. This old woman is going to have a baby? Get real. And she laughed at the Lord's promise. 
It was a different kind of a laugh than Abraham's laughing in chapter 17, verse 17. God did not rebuke Abraham when he laughed, so apparently his laugh was a laugh of believing, trusting joy. God said, you're going to have a son, and he said, ha ha, this is great. But the Lord's rebuke of Sarah in verses 13 and 14 shows that Sarah's laugh arose out of a different kind of a heart. Sarah's laugh was a laugh that said to God, you've got to be kidding me. Sarah's laugh was a chuckle that snorted back at the Lord, yeah, right. She might have been excused for thinking that way if it had been Abraham who made the promise to her. But when we read these verses, we find that one of these three men who came to visit Abraham and Sarah was the Lord Himself. Verse 1, the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham. You find Abraham in these verses and in the verses that follow having a conversation with the Lord. Somehow, we don't know all the the why and the how behind it, but somehow one of these three men was the Lord Himself appearing in the form of a man. And it was the Lord Himself then who spoke the promise to Sarah. It wasn't just any man. It wasn't even her husband. It was the Lord Himself who said, I'm going to return at this time next year and Sarah is going to have a son. And it was at the Lord Himself that Sarah scoffed. Amazing. She laughed in God's face. Before we hang... Sarah in effigy. Let's remind ourselves of how many times we have gotten up off our knees and said amen at the end of our prayers and then gone ahead and lived our lives as though there were no chance God was going to do what we just asked Him to do. God, I need You to take care of this financial situation in my life and I'm trusting You to take care of it. Thank You, Lord. Amen. And then I immediately go out and scheming how I'm going to get some more money into my bank account. Let's remind ourselves also of how often we neglect prayer altogether because we really don't believe God will do the impossible. We really don't believe God will come through for us. And so we just skip praying and go to our own plans from the get-go. At least that's a little more honest. Let's remind ourselves of how often we read God's promises in the Bible and then turn around and act as though they somehow expired in the first century. We find ourselves, too, laughing at God's power and laughing at God's promises. All of us at times, and some of us all the time, find ourselves laughing at God's promises. We don't laugh out loud, mind you, but neither did Sarah. She laughed to herself, and yet God heard her. And you may not laugh and scoff at God out loud, but God hears the empty echoes of faithlessness coming from our hearts just as well as He heard them from Sarah's. We can all therefore loudly second Jesus when He says to the two followers of His walking along the road after His crucifixion, O foolish men, And how slow of heart to believe in all that the Lord has spoken. How foolish we are and how slow of heart we all often are to believe in what the Lord has spoken. And we should all feel the sting when we read the story of Jesus in the boat with His disciples. And they are losing it because they think they're going to die. And they've got God Himself in the boat with them. And Jesus looks at them and He says to them, Where is your faith? When He says that, we should hear Him saying it to us because none of us trust God as we ought. All of us find ourselves in the shoes of Sarah at times. So can I ask you something? Is there something or someone for whom God has led you to pray, but in recent days you've given up? Are there promises in God's Word 
on which you once stood, but today you've given up? Are there little corners in your life, or maybe even whole rooms in your life, where God might enter and find you laughing at His promises, laughing at His power? Are there areas in which you have ceased completely to trust God and obey? And if so, let me urge you to learn from Sarah. Don't go about lying, trying to convince yourself or your God that you're not really laughing, that you're not really scoffing, that you're not really disbelieving. Just come clean. Repent of your unbelief. Say, Lord, you're right. I haven't trusted you. I'm not going to pretend that I have. The prayers that I prayed, some of them were lies. I've given up praying. I haven't trusted you. Just admit that today and repent of that today and then turn and put your trust in Jesus Christ who died for the sin of your unbelief the same way as He died for all your other sins. God will forgive your unbelief. And then as a homework assignment, read on into chapter 21 where verse 1 tells us that the Lord took note of Sarah as He had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as He had promised. What great phrases. As He had said. As He had promised. God always does as He had said and as He had promised. Read that story in chapter 21 for your own edification. And remember that as faithless as you may have been, you are no better off and no worse off than Sarah was. And if the Lord made good on His promise, if the Lord did as He said for a sinner like Sarah, surely He will do as He has said for a sinner like you. As Paul reminds us, if we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. You may not believe God is going to do what He said He will do, But God's action doesn't depend on what you believe, but on what He has said. So we would do well just to trust Him and watch Him work wonders on our behalf. Well, let me draw this to a conclusion by pointing out to you that though we've not said so specifically, what we've really been doing this morning is answering a simple question from this passage. What is faith? What does it look like to believe in the Lord? Now, this story doesn't give us a comprehensive definition of faith. It doesn't tell us everything we ever wanted to know about faith. But it does make the concept of faith a little more three-dimensional, I think. It gives faith a human face in the person of faithful, in this case, Abraham, and unfaithful, Sarah. So we've been learning about faith. So how can we summarize what we've learned Let me give you five bullet points and then close with prayer. Number one, faith never gives up hoping in God. Even if He should delay 23 years or 2,000 years in making good on His promise, faith never gives up hoping in God. Number two, Faith puts no confidence in what man can do. Whether it be circumcision or baptism or obedience to God's law or any other work. Faith puts no confidence in what man can do, but all confidence in what Jesus Christ has done. Three, faith is the gift of God. We don't believe because somehow we are more deserving than those who don't. Faith is not something that is worked up by those who are deserving. Faith is something that is granted freely to those who are chosen. It's a humbling thought. Faith is the gift of God. Number four, faith shows itself in practical obedience to God. Even if the task ahead is difficult like it was for Abraham to circumcise himself and his family, even if the task ahead is painful or seems impossible, 
Faith always shows itself in practical obedience to God. And number five, faith does not flinch when the situation looks impossible. Instead, when faced with difficult odds, faith says, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Faith does not flinch when the situation looks impossible. So may the Lord grant us faith this morning to hear and to believe what He has said. Father, I pray now that You would grant faith to us today. God, that You would give us faith to keep trusting You, to keep praying, to keep hoping, and to know that You will come through on Your promises even though it seems long in the waiting. God, I pray today that You would give us faith that would put no confidence in what we can do or what we have done, but all confidence in what Jesus has done. God, I pray this morning that You would give us faith that would remember that that faith itself is a gift from You. That it wasn't worked up by us, that we weren't somehow deserving of being Your children, but that faith was granted to us freely as a gift. God, give us faith today that would show itself in practical obedience. That all of us would go out of this room this morning living differently before You because we trust that You know what's best. And give us faith this morning, Lord, that won't flinch when we face the impossible. When we go out tomorrow and face a difficult meeting or an incredible trial or terrible news, that we would still trust You and say, is anything too difficult for the Lord? And finally this morning, grant faith to some who sit here this morning without a Savior. Some who sit this morning not knowing what it's like to even begin to trust You because they're still trusting in themselves and haven't yet met Jesus who has done all that needed to be done for them to become Your children. Give some faith for the first time today to put their trust in Christ and to be forever forgiven and forever changed. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to continue the story of Abram in chapter 17 of the book of Genesis. So turn to Genesis 17 and verse 1.